This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca A couple of words of introduction, very briefly. Number one, the methodology of this course is not going to be to debunk Christianity. We're not here to demonstrate that Christianity is a stupid religion, is a false religion, is a, is a meaningless religion. It's not the, the, the methodology of this class. Uh, as you see on the review sheets from last week, we as Jews don't believe that everyone needs to convert to Judaism for God to like them. Unlike Christianity, which believes that you can only become a child of God by becoming a Christian, Jews don't believe that the entire world must become Jewish to have a relationship with God. So we don't need to spend our time debunking Christianity per se. What we will be doing is debunking the missionary claim. I need you to be focused on this very clearly. The missionary claim is that Christianity is Jewish. The missionary claim is that every Christian doctrine is based on the, in the Jewish Bible. So the methodology of the missionary is to show that Christian theology is consistent with Judaism. How? Because it's consistent with the Jewish Bible. All we're going to do in this class, and you need to keep your eye on the ball, all, you need to do in the, all we will be doing in the class is showing one simple thing. Christianity is not the same as Judaism. We will basically just show that we are two different religions. We're not going to try and show here that Judaism is true or that Christianity is false. It's not going to be our purpose. We're not going to try and prove the truth of Judaism. We're simply going to be able to show that the Christian religion is different than the Jewish religion. We believe different things. And that's to, to entertain Christian beliefs, you cannot, be, you cannot say to yourself, I'm still a good Jew. I'm still consistent with Judaism. And specifically, we're going to be doing this by showing that Christian theology and Christian beliefs are not based upon the Jewish Bible. They're not consistent with the teachings of the Jewish Bible. That's number one. Number two, it's important for you to understand, because we're going to be spending the rest of this course looking at the Bible. And it's important to understand that the Bible is not really where it's at when it comes to Jewish people converting to Christianity. It's imperative that you understand this. There is never, I've never met a Jew, I don't believe there are any Jews in the world that converted to Christianity because they were shown a verse in the Bible. Although, that is the report that you will hear. When you speak to Jewish converts to Christianity, they will very gladly tell you, well, I looked through the Bible, and I studied the Bible, and I was shown all these prophecies in the Bible, and they claim that the process simply went from the Bible to their conversion. That's not true. The reason it's not true is that virtually none of the Jewish people who convert to Christianity ever really believed in the Bible in the first place. You see, what happens is Jewish people are almost led down a trap. Because the Christian might approach a Jew and talk about their beliefs, and the Jew will say, well, I'm a Jew, I don't believe in the New Testament. Right? I don't believe in the New Testament. But the implication is, but I believe in the Old Testament. Right? I believe in the Jewish Bible. That's rarely the case. It's rarely the case. What do I mean by that? The typical Jewish person who converts to Christianity, if you had met them a week before their conversion to Christianity, a week before, and you showed them all the places in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy where it says you can't eat pork, there are very few Jews that would stop going to McDonald's because you show them a verse in the book of Deuteronomy. So the Jews that convert to Christianity are not people that are spending their entire lives looking through the Bible to see how they should be living. You must understand this. The Bible is not the driving force of their lives. 
So when they tell you that what led them to Christianity was the Jewish Bible, it's never the case. It's never the case. However, after the fact, after their conversion, they will begin to use the Bible as the intellectual matrix for their entire worldview. Because very few people want to go through life saying, yes, I had a completely emotional experience, and now I'm a Christian. They want to, to feel internally, they want to feel in their own lives that they did something that was based upon intellectually solid ground, and they had reasons for doing what they did, and they will basically recreate this historical revisionism going on. They'll recreate intellectually what didn't happen to them. What didn't happen is that they were shown from the Bible what the truth is, and because they originally held the Bible to be the guiding force of their lives, they came to believe in Jesus. Normally what happens is these are Jewish people who never believed the Bible to be a very important book in their lives anyway, and it was only Christians who were able to influence them towards Christianity that begin later on to get them to believe the Bible is an important book, the Word of God, and once they, after the fact, become to accept the Bible as the Word of God, then it becomes an important book to talk about. So I need, I need you to understand that. That although we'll be looking at the Bible exclusively in this class, don't think that the Bible is what leads Jewish people to Christianity. It's never the case. Clear? Okay. Number three. We'll be dealing tonight with the topic of the Messiah. That's going to be the first issue for the course. And I need you to understand that Christians will almost exclusively use the topic of the Messiah as a point of contact with Jews. It's one of the primary, one of the, the, the central topics to come up in conversations between Christian missionaries and Jews is the whole topic of the Messiah. You need to understand that in almost all cases, the Christian is engaging in a deception when they have this discussion. In almost all cases, the Christian missionary is not completely upfront when they speak to the Jewish people about Jesus as being the Messiah. And the reason is that Christians do not believe simply that Jesus was the Messiah. Orthodox evangelical Christians believe that Jesus was God. They believe Jesus was God. And yet they understand very well that for most Jewish people, that's a repulsive idea. They understand that if they were to really confront Jews initially in terms of what they really believe, they would not get too far with Jewish people. It wouldn't be a topic that would really uh, last very long. It wouldn't be a topic that would be comfortable for Jewish people to talk about. The idea that a human being was God is offensive and repulsive to Jews. And therefore, many, many Christian missionary training manuals say in the initial stages of conversion, in the initial stages of evangelism, avoid discussing the deity of the Messiah. Avoid the topic of the deity of the Messiah. So really what Christians should try and be doing is showing that Jesus is God. But they will not do that original, initially. Once they get Jewish people to entertain the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah and the Jewish person accepts the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, then afterwards they can sort of sneak it under the carpet that really he was God all along. Right? Once the first step is taken. So even though tonight we'll be looking at the topic of the Messiah, understand that in the Christian scheme of thinking, this is really not what they believe. Okay? And we'll be getting into, later on in the course, the whole topic of the Trinity. But for tonight, we'll be looking at the question of the Jewish Messiah, the real Messiah. One of the saddest things is that Jewish people, when confronted with uh, a believing Christian, will often, in knee-jerk reactions, say, well, I'm Jewish, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm Jewish, I don't believe in Jesus. 
And the Christian missionary will ask, well, why not? And the Jewish person will say, because we don't believe in Jesus. The Christian says, well, why don't you? Because we don't. Why not? Because Jews don't believe in Jesus. Well, why don't you? Because we don't. And the Jewish person generally has a very difficult time articulating specifically and precisely why we do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And the principal problem is that very few Jewish people have any clue as to what specifically and precisely the Messiah is. We're going to see tonight that just like any other issue in the world, you cannot really move at all without a very clear working definition. Once you have a clear working definition, then you can intelligently discuss any topic. But what happens if you don't have that clear working definition, you get emotional and you just shoot from the hip and you grasp for straws and you essentially avoid the real issue. So any intelligent discussion about the Messiah and who the Messiah is and whether or not Jesus was the Messiah is meaningless unless you were able to define clearly and precisely what is the Messiah. Once you have a definition, understanding what is the Messiah, simply hold any candidate up to those criteria. So that's where we'll begin. The word Messiah, the English word that we say Messiah, is simply an English rendering of the Hebrew word Mashiach. There's a Hebrew word Mashiach, which many people in the West have difficulty saying, and making the Chah sound. So instead of saying Mashiach and breaking your throat, we simply say it in anglicized form, Messiah. The same way my Hebrew name is Yitzchak, but people have difficulty making the Yitzchak sound, so it becomes Isaac. Okay? But you don't know at this point what the word means. You don't know what Yitzchak means, because you've said it in a more uh, palatable form. You don't know what Mashiach means, because you said it in anglicized form. The definition of the word Mashiach, the definition comes from the Hebrew form Limshoach, which means to pour. To pour, P-O-U-R. So the word Mashiach is related to this concept of pouring. Specifically, in the Bible we're going to see that oil was often poured on people or things to inaugurate them or initiate them into the service of God. So in the Bible we're going to see tonight that a ceremony that was done as an initiation ceremony to inaugurate people into the service of God or things into the service of God was to pour oil on them. If we look at Exodus chapter 30, starting with verse 22, we have here the formula in the Bible, the recipe for making the anointing oil. We're told that God spoke to Moses, take the finest of spices, liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. A shekel is a weight, an amount, and a sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, 250, 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, measured by the sanctuary shekel, and a heen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil. It was, an it was an oil that was used to anoint, to pour on people or things. Blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the covenant and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense 
and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin with its stand. And you shall consecrate them so they shall be made most holy. Now, in the Bible, we're told in the book of Exodus that when the Jewish people left Egypt 3,300 years ago, they built a portable form of what would later become the temple in Jerusalem, the holy temple in Jerusalem. And initially it was portable, it was able to move around with them in the desert. And we're told here in Exodus chapter 30 that when this was constructed, each of the parts of this portable temple, the altars, the different basins, the different utensils, were all anointed with oil to dedicate them into the service of God. And then we're told later on in chapter 30, in verse 30, that you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. Aaron and his sons were the priests in the temple. So the priests were anointed with oil. They had oil poured on them. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 7, we're told specifically how this should be done. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So the way the priests were anointed was by having this special anointing oil poured on their heads. We're going to see in the Jewish Bible that not only priests were anointed with oil, but kings were anointed with oil. Every Jewish king was anointed with oil to initiate them into the service of God. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 10, starting with verse 1, Samuel the prophet took a vial of oil and poured it on his head. This is referring to the first Jewish king, Saul, Shaul. So Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his, Shaul's head, and kissed him, and he said, The Lord has anointed you ruler over his people Israel. We see later on in the first book of Samuel that the same thing happens with David, that then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. So we see that the Jewish kings were initiated into service as well by being anointed with oil. What's interesting is that because they were people who were anointed, they were referred to as an anointed one. The person would actually be called one who is anointed, or in Hebrew, a Mashiach, a Messiah. So a high priest would be called a Messiah. The king would be referred to as a Messiah. Where do we see this? In the first book of Samuel, chapter 24, verse 16, we have here a story of David, King David, being pursued. Actually, he wasn't king yet. He didn't serve as king yet, but he was being pursued by Saul, who was the first king. Saul was trying to kill him. And David had many opportunities to actually strike back and kill King Saul. But we see that he refused. He would, he would not kill Saul, the king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, it might actually be six. He, David, said to his men, God forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, God's anointed, God's Messiah here, the Mashiach of God, to raise my hand against him. For he, Saul, is the Lord's anointed. He is God's Messiah. So you see here that the king is actually called a Messiah. The same thing we see not just about kings, but about prophets as well. In the first book of Kings, chapter 19, verse 16, Elijah the prophet is told, you shall anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Avel Mechola, as prophet in your place. 
So kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. We know in the book of Isaiah that the prophet Isaiah was anointed by God. And we see even non-Jewish kings are referred to as messiahs. Here in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 1, God says to Isaiah, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus, who was a non-Jewish king of Persia, here is called God's anointed, God's Mashiach. Koamar Adonai Lamishicho. Thus says God to his Messiah. So we see here that in the Bible, there are many messiahs. Look for a second here at Psalm 105, verse 15. Do not touch my anointed ones. I'll take over Mishichai. Do not afflict or do not strike. Do not touch my messiahs. So one thing we see very clearly in the Jewish Bible is that there are many messiahs. There are many people who are anointed with oil, many people we can call messiah. Christians that hear this feel very uncomfortable. Because to the Christian mindset, there is one unique person in the history of the world who is the Messiah. And they never think about other people being called Messiah. It's a very difficult thing for them to hear. Because in most English translations of the Bible, it refers to these people as an anointed one. But again, anointed is simply an English translation of the word Mashiach. So we see, number one, that in the Bible there are many different Messiahs. What's conspicuously missing from the Bible is any reference to someone that we call the Messiah. The word with the definite article. There are many people who are messiahs. This one is a messiah. That one is a messiah. What the Bible does not describe is anything that we refer to as the messiah. There is no reference anywhere in the Bible to someone that we refer to as the messiah. Now, let me just clarify that because what I just said was not 100% true. I want to make it clear. In the beginning of the book of Vayikra, in the beginning of the book of Leviticus, there are about a half dozen references to Aaron, the high priest. And there the Bible refers to him as Hakohen Hamashiach. Hakohen, the priest. Hamashiach, the anointed one. So the high priest was the anointed priest. In Hebrew, we double up the, the, uh, the definite article. It's Hakohen Hamashiach, the priest, the anointed, or the anointed priest. So the only time you'll ever find this word Hamashiach, the Messiah, in the Jewish Bible is four or five references in the beginning of the book of Leviticus to Aaron. And let's look at one source down here. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. If the anointed priest shall sin as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish, unto the Lord for a sin offering. So here we're referring to a specific person who was the high priest of the Jewish people. In the first case, it was Aaron. And the only way we can say high priest in Hebrew is by saying, Hakohen HaMashiach. But this is not a reference to the person that we refer to as the future Messiah who's to come at the end of history. And that's the problem with our class for tonight. There is no reference anywhere in the Bible to the future anointed one to come in the Bible directly as HaMashiach. What does that mean? 
That means that if you have an argument with a Christian, you can't go to the index of the Bible, a concordance, and simply look up the word Hamashiach, the Messiah, and find any clear references in the Bible to anyone the Bible calls the Messiah. You cannot find any clear statement in the Bible that says something like, in the future, the Messiah will come. Or, the Messiah will accomplish the following things. There is not one direct, overt reference to anyone in the Bible that we call the Messiah. Now, from a Christian point of view, this is a very embarrassing omission. Because in Christianity, the concept of the Messiah is paramount. It's the foundational concept in the Christian religion. Christianity does not get off the ground without the messianic concept. The name Christianity means of the Messiah. I mentioned this last week. Christ was not the last name of Jesus. Right? Like Jesus Schwartz or Jesus Cohen. Christ simply is the English form of the Greek Christos, which is the way of saying Mashiach, Messiah. So really Jesus Christ really should be Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. So you would assume that in Christianity it would be nice, you'd feel comfortable, there would be a comfort level with having at least one reference in the Bible to anyone that's called the Messiah. And yet Christians have to face the reality that the Bible never even uses the word once. So as a Christian, I'd be wondering, I'd be curious, why doesn't the Bible ever explicitly refer to anyone as the Messiah? If that's the most, the most important concept, the entire Bible, bar none, it's very strange that it's not mentioned once. From a Jewish point of view, we're not that uncomfortable. In Judaism, the idea of the Messiah is not the most central important concept in Judaism. God is the most important concept, and God is all over the Bible, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. The Messiah is not the most central important concept, and we're not so bothered by the fact that the word the Messiah doesn't appear in the Bible. But the problem for tonight is the following. Where does the idea come from then? If you cannot look up in the Bible, in the index, the word the Messiah, and then find 15 references to someone we call the Messiah, where do we get the idea from? How do we develop this concept of the Messiah? If you go through the entire Bible, if you read from cover to cover, there are essentially four different kinds of material in the Bible. Four different kinds of writing in the Bible. The Bible has history, there's plenty of history in the Bible, stories. There's legislation in the Bible, laws that God gave. There's wisdom literature in the Bible. There's poetry, proverbs, and then there's prophecy in the Bible. Those are the only four kinds of literature in the Bible. History, legislation, wisdom literature, and prophecy. One of the central parts of the Bible is prophecy. And there are basically two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. One type of prophecy is relatively short-term, immediate prophecy, where the prophet gives an immediate prophecy about something that's going to happen during those days. For example, Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh and says, in 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overturned. In 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be overturned. Or, Jeremiah the prophet making reference to 70 years the Jewish people will spend in exile in Babylon. So many times in the Bible, a prophecy is of immediate, short-term duration. But most often in the Bible, prophecy is more indefinite. 
and is speaking about the distant future. And there are two ways of recognizing a long-term prophecy in the Bible. Generally speaking, prophecy is expressed in the future tense, obviously. It's speaking about what is going to happen in the future, in the distant future. So the Bible uses the future tense. And secondly, the Bible will very frequently have a preamble. The Bible will often introduce the prophecy by saying, thus says the Lord, it will come to pass at the end of days. Or the Bible might introduce the prophecy by saying, in those days, says the Lord, such and such will happen. But generally speaking, the Bible will give you a little indication that it's going to speak about something to happen in the distant future. If you go through the entire Bible, probably the most central theme that comes out among the prophetic passages is the long-term prophecy articulated by practically all of the prophets that there will come in the future a time of universal perfection. The prophets paint a picture of a future utopia. And the utopia is characterized by essentially two factors. Number one, the Bible says there will be a time in the future where there will be no more war, an absence of war and hostility and fighting. And number two, the Bible speaks about this time as a time when all human beings will understand and know and have a relationship with God. These are the two features of this future age of perfection the Bible speaks about over and over and over again. It clearly emerges as one of the central prophetic themes in the Bible. Let's go through some of these passages, starting with the book of Micha, chapter 4. In days to come, that's the preamble, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Almost the exact same passage appears in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. Continuing this theme of a world that will be transformed into a world of peace and safety, we find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verse 18, Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your wall salvation and your gates praise. Even though the Bible is painting a picture of universal peace and universal tranquility, the focus of the Bible is generally the Jewish people in the land of Israel. So the, the way the Bible articulates peace in the world is very frequently by speaking about the Jewish people having peace in their own land. But again, the major theme is worldwide peace. In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 16, Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. In the book of Hosea chapter 2, verse 18, 
I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, with the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And finally, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, for never again shall it be doomed to destruction. Jerusalem shall abide in security. Again, this is a small sampling of many, many dozens of verses in the Bible which speak about a time in the future of peace and tranquility. The second theme that characterizes this age of perfection, this utopian age, is a universal recognition of God. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, we're told, And God will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In the book of Zechariah, again, chapter 8, verse 23, one of the most central themes of the Bible. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from nations of every language will take hold of a Jew, grasping his garment and saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In the book of Psalms, chapter 86, verse 9, All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, For then I will turn to the people a pure language, and they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 34, No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The Bible is teaching here in the book of Jeremiah that in this future age of perfection, there will be no more missionaries. There will be no more teachers. There will be no more rabbis. No one having to go around the world teaching people to know God. Because the prophet again says here in Jeremiah that no longer will they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 23, And it shall come to pass that from one moon, one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. So we have here, on these preceding two pages, developed in just a few verses, this theme which runs organically throughout the entire Bible, that there will come an age in the future, a time, when there will be no more war, and where all human beings will know God. Now, if you look carefully, and you listen carefully, there was no reference here, not one reference to any individual personality. These passages simply describe a future age. There was no reference to any single individual who will do anything. It's one of the reasons that the reform movement early on didn't really accept the idea of a personal Messiah, but focused more on the concept of a messianic age. Because the focus of the Bible is clearly on this age of transformation, this age of perfection. But if you remember from early math set theory, so you can imagine here two sets. The larger set, set A, are the, lo are the long list of passages that describe this future age of perfection. But included within set A is subset B. And we're going to look at now a number of verses which speak about a special individual who will exist at this time of future world perfection. 
So our next reference is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And here we'll see, again, a reference to this age of future peace and knowledge of God, but a reference to an individual. A shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch will grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of God. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the roll over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Here we have a reference to a ceasing and a desisting of any destruction and war, accompanied by a universal knowledge of God, but also a reference to a righteous judge, a righteous leader that will emerge among the Jewish people. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30, verses 7 through 10, we see as well a reference to a king who will arise at that time from the line of David. Alas, the day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he will be rescued from it. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break the yoke from off his neck, and I will burst his bonds, and strangers shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. <clears throat> but as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and no one shall make him afraid. Again, this is consistent with the previous passages about the peace that will reign among the Jewish people in the land of Israel, but here a further reference to a king from the line of David. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 5 through 6, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. Again, recognize the preamble here telling you it's a prophecy about the future. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Basically, the same passage repeats in Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 to 15. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, etc. Finally, probably two of the most clear passages in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 24, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. They shall live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, in which your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children shall live there forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will bless them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Then the nations shall know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is among them forevermore. Again, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, essentially the same message, starting with verse 23, I will set up one shepherd over them, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and I will banish wild animals from the land so that they may live in the wild and sleep in the woods securely. I will make them in the region around them my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase. They shall be secure on the soil, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and save them from the hands of those who enslave them. They shall no more be plunder for the nations, nor shall the animals of the land devour them. They shall live in safety, and no one shall make them afraid. I will provide for them a splendid vegetation, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the insults of the nations. They shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that, they, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. In the book of Hosea, chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, we're told that the Israelites will remain many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the Israelites shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall he cut off. And he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In the book of Samuel, we just reiterate the idea that there will be a king who will come from the line of David. In the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, David is told the following. David is told the following. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And finally, in the book of Psalms, chapter 89, verses 35 to 37, once and for all, God says, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His line shall continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon, an enduring witness in the skies. We see here basically the culmination of, sub, of set A and subset B. 
We've seen many prophecies in the Bible, and there are many, many more, but we've seen many examples of prophecies speaking about a future age of perfection and utopia, a future age when there'll be no more war and strife, the Jewish people will live at peace in the land of Israel, and the entire world will know God. And the Bible has a subset where at this time, we're told, there will be a righteous king from the line of David who will rule the Jewish people. Now, the Bible never calls this king, not once, the Messiah. We've not seen one verse where this king is referred to in the Bible as the Messiah. But we, by convention, refer to this future king as the Messiah. And it's crucial that you understand why we refer to this king as the Messiah. It should be very simple now, like an algebraic, like a geometric uh, proof. Essentially, we saw in the Bible that every king was anointed with oil. Any king that's anointed is called a Mashiach, an anointed one, a Messiah. So this future king is a special, ultimate future king to come. And since he, as a king, will be a Messiah, we refer to him by convention as the Messiah. Again, the Bible never by name or title calls this king the Messiah. But as a king, he will be a Messiah. And since it's the future, special, ultimate king to come, we, by convention, refer to this one as the Messiah, with a definite article. <coughs> Christians are generally incredulous completely incredulous when they meet Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. Christians are very shocked to meet Jewish people who will declare their belief they do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And what Christians will ask generally is, if you don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, how would you ever recognize the Messiah? And you've got to picture their question as a question with 500 question marks at the end of it. They're shocked. How would you ever possibly recognize who the Messiah is? If it wasn't Jesus, who could it be? How would you recognize the Messiah? And if you followed the class so far, it should be very simple. Because when we reach a time in history where the world is transformed, and there is no more war, and there is no more strife, and the Jewish people are living at peace in the land of Israel, and every single person in the world believes in God, that is front-page news. That has never happened. And when it happens, it will be impossible to trip over it. You will not be able to miss this event. So the Jewish people will very easily recognize the Messiah. When the world is transformed to a place and a, and a time when... There is no more war, no more strife. The Jewish people are living completely at peace in the land of Israel. And every human being has a personal knowledge of God. We will simply look toward Israel and see who is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That is the Messiah. It's impossible to miss the Jewish Messiah when he comes. We should realize, by the way, but the Bible makes no reference to the idea of belief in the Messiah, which is but the foundation of Christianity. It should be obvious why the Bible doesn't speak ever in terms of belief in this future anointed king. No one today in the world would say, I believe that Bill Clinton is the president of the United States. I believe in Bill Clinton. You don't say that you believe Bill Clinton is president. 
It's not an article of faith. It's a matter of fact. If someone tells you they insist they believe that Bill Clinton is the president, you lock them up in a loony asylum. Because it's not something that you need to believe in. It's clear. It's evident to everyone. He won the election. He's sitting in the White House. There's no dispute. There's no one that needs to believe that Clinton is the president. You know that he's the president. So the Jewish Messiah, when he comes, will be so clear to everyone in the world, it's pointless to speak about believing in the Messiah. It's a pointless concept. The Bible simply says he will come and there will be no disputes when it happens. Any time in this course we look at a theological concept from a Jewish point of view, I will try to show you that the Jewish theological perspective is one that develops organically from reading the Bible and emerges clearly and consistently throughout the Bible. These two words are really crucial to understand the methodology of this course. Any concept that we develop has to emerge clearly and consistently in the Bible to feel secure. How do I mean that? If we're going to formulate a position on what the Messiah is, we want to be able to look at passages where each passage is clearly a passage which speaks about the Messiah. And what I hope you walk away with tonight is an understanding of why we as Jewish people would look at any of the previous passages and say, oh, this passage is speaking about the Messiah. What gives us the right to say that any of these passages is speaking about the Messiah? We develop it like an, a geometric proof. It's speaking about a future age of perfection. It's speaking about a future anointed king. Every king was anointed was a Messiah, so this one is a Messiah, the Messiah, because it's the first, last ultimate special one to come. We feel comfortable saying that Jeremiah 23 is referring to the Messiah. We feel comfortable saying that Ezekiel 37 is speaking about the Messiah because they're speaking about a future anointed king. So each passage in our presentation is a passage where we can say it is clearly referring to someone that we could call the Messiah. And secondly, all our passages are consistent, meaning we have many, many, many passages which each paint essentially the same picture. So we're developing a vision, we're developing a concept which is clear, because each reference is one which is non-disputable, and each reference is consistent. What I'd like you to do just for a minute is look at the next series of quotes, which are, I chose at random from a book put out by Christian missionaries. And they have a listing of 65 verses in the Bible, which they say prove Jesus was the Messiah. And these are four verses I chose at random that are used by Christians to apply to Jesus as the Messiah. We're not going to study these passages in any depth tonight. I just want to give you an appreciation on a very superficial level for how these Christian texts are very different in kind from the Jewish texts we just looked at. Again, these are all texts from the Jewish Bible, from the Old Testament, but I want you to see the quality of these passages and how they're different from 
passages that we as Jews would point to as referring to the Messiah. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. This is in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of knowledge. And God now is about to curse the snake, the serpent. And God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon you, upon your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now we as Jews would say, what would lead us to believe this passage is referring to the Messiah? Are there any internal clues here which point to anyone that we can confidently say is messianic? Is there a reference to a king? Is there a reference to anyone that was ever anointed with oil? What is it about this passage that leads the Christian to say it is referring to the Messiah? Now in future weeks we will study these passages in great depth. You'll understand what led Christians to maintain this point of view. I just need you to appreciate on a very cursory level at this point how this kind of passage is different than the ones we looked at tonight. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Christians maintain this is a messianic prophecy. Again, we would feel uncomfortable insisting this is a verse which speaks about the Messiah. There's no internal evidence. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. This is referring to the Paschal Lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the animal outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Believe it or not, Christians use this as a verse to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And finally, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. I then said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. So they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it into the treasury, this lordly price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff, unity in knowing the family ties between Judah and Israel. Again, there's very little internal, I would suggest no internal evidence here that suggests this is a passage speaking about the Messiah. I need you to appreciate on a surface level how the Christian verses differ from the Jewish verses. To sum up at this point, we see from the Bible emerging a very clear picture of what the Messiah is. The Messiah is a future ruler that will emerge at a time when the world is transformed into a utopian age of universal peace peace, and universal recognition of God. The Messiah will be a descendant of King David and the Messiah will be someone that's recognized by everyone. It should be very clear at this point why Jewish people do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And it's nothing personal against Jesus. You should know that historically, at the time of Jesus, there were four, at least four other contenders for the title. Josephus speaks about several other people. The New Testament makes reference to several other people who claim to be the Messiah. And the reality was that none of them fulfilled 
the biblical criterion for what the Messiah was supposed to do. None of them became the king of the Jewish people. Certainly none of them managed to rule Israel at a time when the world was transformed into a place of peace and knowledge of God. I'll just share with you a, a brief story that happened to me years ago. Actually, if you saw the video we showed last week, it was filmed at the congregation, the Hebrew Christian congregation in Buffalo. I went to that conference in 1986. And it was a conference of the Assemblies of God, which is a large Christian Pentecostal denomination that is very much focused on trying to convert Jews. And at this conference, every single person there was very friendly to me, was very welcoming, was trying to obviously win me over. There was one of the missionaries who also appeared on the video. He was the one that said there are 15 million Assemblies of God members. They should each rise out and pick a Jew. So this particular missionary uh, gave me a very difficult time. He was very obnoxious. And he approached me one night and said, you know, Michael, you Jews are all very stupid. I said, good sales technique, Harvey. (laughs) Very sweet of you. So... I questioned him, I said, what makes you say that the Jews are all stupid? I mean, it's the kind of thing that uh, it's hard to believe about the Jewish people. Usually, we have the opposite reputation. So, he said, well, you're all stupid because you believe in the rabbis, you trust the rabbis. So, I was curious as to why that's a problem. What's wrong with, with believing the rabbis? Listening to the rabbis, he says, well, listen, wasn't the greatest rabbi in the Talmud Rabbi Akiva? Wasn't he the greatest rabbi? And I said, okay, he was certainly one of the top ten. So he said, didn't Rabbi Akiva think that Bar Kochba was the Messiah? If you know your Jewish history, there was a Jewish rebellion against the Roman occupation around the year 135. This is about a hundred years after Jesus. And Rabbi Akiva, who was the great sage of the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva said that this Bar Kochba, a great general, was going to be the Jewish Messiah. He dubbed him the Messiah. So, this particular person's point was that if the greatest rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, could be wrong about the Messiah, then maybe all the rabbis are wrong. And for the Jewish people to listen to the opinions of the rabbis, they're pretty stupid because they're following people who could be wrong. So, this wasn't my brilliance. This actually was a story that happened 100 years ago in Europe. So, one of the great rabbis, he was on a train where this exact same scenario took place. I just happened to have read the story. So, I used the rabbi's line. So I asked this uh, missionary, I said, well, you're putting down all the Jewish people. What makes you so sure that Bar Kokhba wasn't the Messiah? Your whole argument is based upon uh, this mistake. He said, well, it's obvious he wasn't the Messiah. He was killed by the Romans. (laughs) 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 So he clearly stepped into it. But that was the reality 2,000 years ago. Because when Jesus made the claim that he's the Messiah, any Jewish person any Jewish person should probably say, Halavai, right? Were it so? We, we wish you were the Messiah. I hope it works out, right? Because it would be great if you're the Messiah. The world's going to be a better place. We adopt as Jewish people a wait-and-see policy, right? If you are able to fulfill the biblical criterion, if you're able to become the Jewish king who will rule the entire land of Israel, when the world's transformed into a place of peace and recognition of God, then, yeah, you'll be right. You were the Messiah. Clearly, when Jesus died and didn't fulfill that, when Bar Kokhba died and didn't fulfill that, when any of the other messianic claimants died and didn't fulfill that, it's clear they're not the Messiah. 
So we understand at the, this point in our course why the Jewish people did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. He did not fulfill the very clear biblical criterion that we developed tonight. He didn't become the king. He wasn't living as a king at the time when the world was transformed into a utopian perfection. There are two more pieces to the puzzle I want to finish off before we conclude tonight. <clears throat> there is a prophecy in the book of Malachi, often called Malachi, at the very end of the book, there's different pagination between the Jewish and Christian Bibles. It's either chapter 3, verse 23, or chapter 4, verse 5. But the prophet tells us that, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, is a better translation. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. So we have this prophecy, and if you listen clearly to the prophecy, it's not 100% clear that this is a messianic prophecy. Again, if you're sensitive to what we've done so far, for a prophecy to be messianic, it must be pointing to a king, and it must be speaking about a time of perfection. Here, there's no reference to a king. There's no reference overtly to a time of perfection. However, Jewish tradition assumes that this is a passage that's speaking about the messianic age, the time of the Messiah, and it says that God will send us Elijah the prophet who will return just before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. By implication, what is the great and awesome day of the Lord? It's the time when the Messiah comes. So before the Messiah comes, God will send us Elijah the prophet. As you know, in the Bible, Elijah never died, he went straight to heaven. So Elijah, we believe, never died, and God will send him to return to us before the coming of Messiah. Christianity also accepts this as a messianic prophecy. So here, Jews and Christians agree that before the Messiah comes, God will send the prophet Elijah. Now, another problem with the messianic claims made for Jesus is that, ostensibly, this didn't happen. We don't recognize the return of Elijah the prophet before Jesus came. And indeed, if the Bible is telling us that Elijah the prophet must return before the coming of the Messiah, then his absence 2,000 years ago is a big problem for the Christian claim. So in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, the claim is made that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet. We don't have the reference here in our, in our books, in our source books, but I believe it's chapter 17 and chapter 11 in the book of Matthew where the claim is made, Jesus actually himself says that John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet. Now this is a claim which we need to examine. We can't simply reject it out of hand and yet we simply can't accept it without being critical. Right? The claim is being made what evidence is there that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet? Is there any way of clarifying the issue? So one piece of information is central. In the New Testament, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, the Jewish people at that time asked John the Baptist who he was. There were even people who suspected that John the Baptist might have been the Messiah. 
They asked him, Who are you? And in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. There, was, there were rumblings that John the Baptist himself might have been the Messiah. He denies it. He says, I am not the Messiah. And in verse 21, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. So you have here a very great difficulty that Jesus claims that John the Baptist was the Messiah, but John the Baptist is not aware of it. He denies being Elijah the prophet. So Christian apologists generally will say that even though Elijah the prophet was not manifest in John the Baptist, they will claim that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. You find this in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 17. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him. So the claim is made that, that this is a very convenient claim, right? If someone is not who they say they are, you can always say that they came in the spirit of that person. It's very hard to argue with the spirit. But we still need to analyze this. John the Baptist, when he was asked the question, who are you? Are you Elijah the prophet? He himself didn't say, well, I'm not actually Elijah the prophet, but I'm someone who's come in the spirit of Elijah the prophet. He denied any association at all with Elijah the prophet. And if you look carefully at the Hebrew in the prophecy from Malachi, the Hebrew says, In Hebrew, the word et is a word which always precedes the direct object of a sentence. So, who is going to return? Elijah the prophet is going to return. The Bible is very clear about that. It doesn't say in the Bible that someone coming in the spirit of Elijah the prophet will return. It says specifically, Et Elian Navi. He himself will come back. So it's very difficult to solve the problem here by claiming that Elijah the prophet was simply someone who was in the spirit of John the Baptist. Finally, the prophecy in Malachi says that this Elijah the prophet, when he returns, will transform the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. There's no evidence at all that John the Baptist accomplished this. Whatever that passage means, and it's not a clear passage, what does it mean that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers? Whatever that means, there's no evidence that it was accomplished by uh, John the Baptist. That's one problem. Not a major problem, but a problem nonetheless that Christians need to contend with. Where was Elijah the prophet before Jesus? Number two, and a more serious problem, is the following. Just about the clearest criterion, just about the clearest criterion in the Bible about the Messiah was that the Messiah must be a descendant of King David. That was something that came up in almost every single prophecy. He must be a descendant of King David. However, the New Testament spends two chapters giving us the genealogy of Jesus. On the right-hand side of your pages, you see Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, two chapters which go into the genealogy of Jesus. Many of you probably know the story told in the book of Matthew about the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And the problem here is very, very simple. The claim in the book of Matthew, if you go through chapter 1 in the book of Matthew, is that Jesus is a direct descendant of King David. Genealogically, you go from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Abiyah, all the way down finally to, to Yaakov, to Joseph, and to Jesus. That's the claim, and it seems fairly linear. The problem is that what, the math, what Matthew's genealogy does, essentially, is trace the genealogy of Joseph, the so-called father of Jesus. But then Matthew shoots himself in the foot by saying, however, that this Joseph was not the father of Jesus. So all we've managed to learn from the book of Matthew is that the husband of Mary, Joseph, did descend genealogically from King David, which is good for his credentials. However, there's no way of establishing the messianic pedigree of Jesus because there's no connection between Jesus and King David. So the missionary counterclaim is that although Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, Joseph adopted Jesus and he became his father through adoption. Now, there are two problems here. Problem number one is that in the Bible, there's no indication that you pass on your genealogical line through adoption. For example, a person is a priest, a Kohen, if their father was a Kohen. But if a person who is a Kohen, if a person who is a priest, adopts a, a child who comes from another tribe, that child does not become a Kohen through adoption. So that's one problem, that genealogy is not passed on through adoption. The second problem is more serious. You cannot pass on through adoption that which you personally don't have. It's possible for a person to be born wealthy if their parents are wealthy. If your parents have a lot of money and they adopt you, then you're a rich kid. But if your parents are paupers and they adopt you, you don't become a rich kid through adoption. They have to have to pass on to you. One of the problems in the genealogy of Matthew is that if you follow the genealogy, it goes through a king who's called in Hebrew Yechonia, Jeconiah. It's right in the middle of Matthew's genealogy. After Ammon, Josiah, Jeconiah. There's actually a mistake here in Matthew because Josiah was not the father of Jeconiah. They're missing a generation. The father of Yehonia was someone named Yehoiakim. Jeconiah, and this is going to get a bit confusing, is Jeconiah in Hebrew is Yehoiachim with an N at the end. And his father was actually someone named Yehoiakim with an M at the end. In any event, this, the central argument remains the same. In the book of Jeremiah, this Jeconiah is cursed. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28. Is this man, Chonia, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one wants? Why are he and his offspring hurled out and cast away in a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, record this man as childless, a man who will not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So there was a curse placed upon this king, Yehonia, 
such that none of his descendants could ever sit on the throne of David. And yet the New Testament shows us that Jesus' so-called father, Joseph, descends directly from Jeconiah. So if Christians insist that Matthew, I'm sorry, that Joseph adopted Jesus and passed on his genealogy through adoption, that would only serve to exclude Jesus from ever being a potential messianic candidate, meaning he'd be born a child who could never in the future become the Messiah because his pedigree is cursed. Now this is a very, very serious problem for Christians, and in many, Christians com- in many Christian commentaries in the New Testament, this is acknowledged as a potential death blow to the messianic claims of Jesus. And they have one salvation. Their one salvation is that there was a second genealogy of Jesus found in the book of Luke, chapter 3. Now this so-called solution really causes more problems than it solves. One thing should be very clear. If you compare Matthew chapter 1 to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3 is almost twice as long. It's very difficult to imagine the same person having two pedigrees so radically different. And the second point is that if you compare the names, none of the names are the same in these two pedigrees, which is very strange, except for three names, I believe. If someone was to write my biography and say, Michael, the son of William, the son of Isaac, and someone else writes one saying, Michael, the son of Bob, the son of Fred, one of these is not right. So here you have two genealogies of Jesus, and they're mutually exclusive. That's one problem. The second problem is that the missionary claim is that it's true. Matthew's genealogy would exclude Jesus from being a messianic candidate. However, they claim that the genealogy in the book of Luke, chapter 3, traces not the genealogy of his father, Joseph, but the genealogy of his mother, Mary. So the claim is that Jesus is able to trace himself back to King David through his mother, Mary. Now, there are four problems with this contention. Problem number one is that the New Testament never speaks about this genealogy as being the genealogy of Mary. If you read it, it simply speaks about if you look at the bottom of the second column, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat. There's no mention of Mary at all in Luke chapter 3. So the claim that it's Mary's genealogy is simply speculation or wishful thinking, but it's not based upon the text. Problem number two is that we know that in the Bible, family line, not Jewishness, But family line is passed on through the father, not through the mother. For example, in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 18, and throughout the book of Numbers, we're told that the Jewish people in the desert were encamped according to their father's families. So the father always establishes the genealogical descent. For example, if a man from the tribe of Benjamin marries a woman from the tribe of Dan, the kids are Benjamin, not Dan. So Mary here is useless to pass on the genealogy to Jesus. She is simply incapable of transmitting family line to Jesus. But there's another problem, and this is the more severe problem. Let's assume that it's talking about Mary, which it's really not. And let's assume that in some way Mary is able to pass on her genealogy to Jesus, which she's not able to. But let's say it was possible. The major problem with this contention is... If you look carefully, 
and Luke's genealogy, he goes from King David to Nathan down all the way to Jesus. From David to Nathan. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, it goes from David through Solomon. David through Solomon. We know that King David had several wives. The Bible tells us that, if you remember your math from, from geometry, there's a point and there's a line. Right? A line is established by going through two points. You need two points to establish a line. We call this a messianic line because it actually goes through two points. The Bible tells us the Messiah must be a descendant not only of David, but of David through his son Solomon. The Bible clearly tells us that the Messiah must be a descendant not just of King David, but of David through his son Solomon. David had many sons. But the Bible says the, genio- the, the line of the Messiah goes through Solomon. For example, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, God says to David, listen carefully to the language, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall, and, and shall come forth from your belly and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Who was the one that built the temple? It was Solomon. So the Bible here is telling us that the one that comes through David's body who will build the temple, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you see this clearly in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to go to be with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me. I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. So the Messiah must come from David through Solomon. The problem with Luke's genealogy is it doesn't go through Solomon. Finally, if you just look in the middle of Matthew's genealogy, I mentioned the two names that Matthew has in common with Luke are Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. It is possible to say that Luke's genealogy also goes through that line that was cursed anyway. Meaning that since Matthew and Luke have those two names in common, it is possible, if they're the same people, that Luke happens to hit that cursed line as well. That would be a fourth problem for Luke. To sum up quickly, what we saw tonight was that the biblical definition of the Messiah is the future Davidic king who will rule Israel at a time when the world is transformed into a world of universal peace and belief in God. That simply hasn't happened yet, so Jesus cannot be the Messiah spoken of in the Bible. Number two, we saw that Elijah the prophet did not return before Jesus. That's a further impediment. And finally, Jesus is eliminated from ever being a potential Messiah because of his tainted genealogy. That's the end of the first session. Next week, what we will focus on is dealing with Jesus. Who was Jesus? How is it possible for Christians, because anyone that listens to this first presentation would say, well, it's so clear, how can anyone believe in Jesus? You see, the Christian question is, how can there be any Jews in the world who don't believe in Jesus? But the shoe's on the other foot. The real question is, if we've developed a clear definition of the Messiah, 
So the real problem is, how is it possible to have an intelligent person in the world who calls himself a Christian and believes in Jesus? How is it possible to entertain the belief that Jesus was the Messiah? Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish